Good morning. Um, yes, I am a dentist, but don't be alarmed. No need to get scared. Um, for nominal fee, I have arranged to have nitrous pumped through the AC. So uh, just take a deep breath, relax. This will all be over in a few minutes. You will hardly feel a thing. So where's my clicker? Um, I'd really like to thank the organizers for um, allowing me to come here today and speak about something that I'm very passionate about. And I'd especially like to thank uh, Dr. Mike Sag and Dr. Jim Raper for giving me an opportunity some 13 years ago to go into a, a field that at the time was somewhat unexplored and uh, allow me to remain there despite my many faults. All right, um, so we're going to be talking about the intersection of oral health and HIV care. Our main topics that we're going to touch on are how to incorporate and why should we incorporate oral health care into the primary health care system in general and especially for our patients in um, our HIV clinics. We'll talk a little bit about um, oral health screening. And uh, as we learned earlier in the conference, this is definitely a place where you want to make sure that you check the right orifice. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about um, a couple of things that, in my opinion, um, over the past few years, uh, and what I've seen in our, in our clinics is the, the two main things that are really plaguing our patients um, today as opposed to um, what was the main problem a few years ago. And then we're going to talk also about um, prioritizing referrals. In my opinion, everyone should have a referral to the dental clinic, but there are some criteria that we can look at that can help you decide um, when is it appropriate, when is it an emergency, when can they wait, and so forth. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> why is oral health even important. Uh, oral disease is a huge burden on society in general worldwide. It causes a lot of pain and suffering. A lot of people state that you know a toothache is like the worst thing you can ever have. And uh, I agree with that, being with someone that's had a toothache before, it's, it's really quite bad. I've had kidney stones as well, and that's no fun either. But a toothache is just something about it that can really persist and cause a lot of problems for folks. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, it means that they end up getting their tooth pulled, which then affects their ability to function properly. Um, mastication is important, of course, for chewing the food and digesting properly and so forth and being able to eat a healthy, balanced diet. And not to mention uh, even the societal norms about our personal appearance uh, all gets involved as well. There's reduced productivity associated with oral disease. There are literally millions of school and work hours missed every year worldwide because of oral health problems. And, of course, that affects the economy and so forth as well. And then there's an overall reduced quality of life. We're talking about the patient's overall well-being, their outlook on life, just, just how they feel in general when you have a bad toothache or something going wrong in your mouth, and it just kind of makes you feel crappy overall. The economic impact of oral disease is tremendous. In most industrialized countries, it is actually the fourth most expensive disease to treat. Everybody knows that going to the dentist is very expensive because providing dental services is very expensive. Dental students today coming out of school, graduating today and going into the private world, on average will be saddled with more than a quarter million dollars in student loan debts just for their four years of general education. If they go beyond into specialization, which is ranges from one year to as much as six years, 
um, of additional training, then that just builds and builds. And in order to go out and start a private practice, which is what most people graduating from dental school do, that's an additional half a million dollars to three quarters of a million dollars just to set up a decent practice if you want to go out on your own. So it's really expensive to get going with dentistry and provide the services, so therefore the cost has to be passed on to the patient and to society. It represents about 5 to 10 percent of the public health expenditure in industrialized countries as well, so it's a big public health burden too. And in most countries, um, care has been traditionally um, provided as curative services. You get a toothache, you go to the dentist, you have something done about it. And there's been less focus on preventive care. And most of that service is actually provided by private practitioners in private offices with a fair amount of autonomy as opposed to public health clinics or hospitals and so forth. Um, there is some savings to be realized in preventive care, both economically and uh, otherwise. It's much less expensive to provide preventive services to your patients, regular checkups, cleanings, small fillings, that sort of thing, as they're needed before it becomes a problem because it's more costly to have the patient wait until they're actually having a problem and then come in, be faced with, you know, radiographs and diagnoses and, you know, possibly root canals or oral surgery and crowns and so forth. Um, not to mention, it's a lot less stressful on the patient and on the staff providing the care if the person doesn't come in already uh, all stressed out because they're having some sort of emergency pain episode. And by providing preventive care, we can also reduce the prevalence of oral disease, which therefore in turn reduces the cost overall. <clears throat> There's been a lot of talk in the last few years about the link between oral disease and other systemic diseases. For a long time, it was thought that, you know, the mouth is the mouth and the body is everything else. And, you know, why should we even pay any attention to what's going on in the mouth? Um, even in training uh, in medical school, nursing school, PA school, and so forth, um, very little emphasis is placed on the oral environment. Um, but as we come to find out, oral disease has a number of common risk factors that it shares with the four most prominent non-communicable diseases uh, prevalent in the U.S. today. So if you look at cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, other types of cancers, and even COPD, the same types of uh, preventable, modifiable risk factors that put people at risk for those diseases are also the same ones that put people at risk for bad oral health. And even oral health, poor oral health itself contributes back to um, these other diseases. For instance, cardiovascular disease. Periodontal disease is a major risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease. And also diabetes plays back and forth with poor oral health. If you had poor oral health, as in bad gingivitis, periodontal disease, it affects your glycemic control, which in turn also causes you to have problems with being able to maintain good oral health. Oral disease and HIV AIDS in particular is a major cause of morbidity in our patients. A lot of uh, problems going on in the oral environment. It affects as much as 40 to 50 percent of our patients at some point during the course of the disease and in some estimates even up to like maybe 85 percent. If we talk mainly about the soft tissue manifestations, which we're not really going to focus on specifically today, um, I would hope that most people are familiar with the common fungal infections and hairy leukoplakia and um, different types of ulcers and so forth. There are some really excellent handouts out in the lobby 
um, that can help you with that as well. If you feel like you need a refresher course on that, um, please contact me or someone else associated with the program. We can, we can definitely get that to you. But as I mentioned earlier, that's not really what I see as plaguing our patients mostly um, today. Yes, we still see candidiasis. We still see bad ulcers, human papillomavirus all over the place. And I still see um, KS coming in more often than I'd really like to. But those are more isolated cases. And in most instances, it's sort of a short-term um, treatable, curable situation. It's not something that the patient has to live with throughout the rest of their life. And we're hoping that they're going to live a long, sustained, productive life. So we're trying to talk more about and get more into improving their quality of their life um, overall. So as I get a drink of water, I'll start talking about dry mouth syndrome. Dry mouth syndrome is really a huge problem. It causes a lot of oral manifestations, it's actually a risk factor for even getting a fungal infection, for instance. But its main problem is how it affects the teeth. If we don't have the buffering capacity and the lubricating capacity of saliva, then the plaque bacteria and the food particles and stuff, you know, get stuck in the teeth. They don't get washed away. They don't get neutralized. So it just sits there and, and ferments on the teeth, causing cavities. And usually dry mouth is not something that you can, you know, you can give a pill or, or you can give an injection or something and cure. It's going to be, in most cases, a lifelong problem that the patients are going to have to deal with. I have a number of patients that literally develop cavities, and they're, they're good with their oral hygiene, you know, brushing and flossing. They develop cavities as fast as I can fix them, and that's a big problem. And in a lot of cases, if they've suffered some periodontal disease or gingivitis in the past, then they've got receding gums. The cavities get onto the root surfaces of the teeth as opposed to in the enamel, and the root surfaces of the teeth are much more vulnerable to decay, and they're very, very difficult to um, fix and maintain. So we have a lot of dental caries. We have teeth being lost because of that over time because we can't um, keep up with the caries development, and so we have people losing teeth and, again, impaired function and quality of life and all that sort of stuff. Who is actually at risk for poor oral health? Well, everybody is in general. There are some, some small genetic factors involved in the situation as well. But by, by uh, large, there are mostly the underserved and disadvantaged. So people that are living in poverty, people that are poorly educated, they have a low dental IQ as well. They're not taught as children that it's important to go to the dentist and get cleanings and brush your teeth and floss. I, for one, have the most wonderful parents in the world. I grew up in a very rural area of Alabama. I had never even heard of floss until I went to dental school. Seriously. And come to find out, if you're not flossing, you're going to have some issues. And that's on a daily basis. It's not just, you know, there's more to it than just getting the chicken from between your teeth. There's a lot more going on there than, than you think. And the thing about not flossing is... The cavities that develop from not flossing develop a little later. It takes longer for them to develop, so they really don't even start showing up until, depending on your, the rest of your oral health regimen and your diet and so forth and so on, until maybe like late 20s, early 30s and so forth. And you really don't even know that it's happening until you suffer some pain from it or a broken tooth from it or you go into the dentist for a regular checkup and we find it on an x-ray because these are not the kind of cavities that you can just look in there and see that you're having a cavity. Um, they're the ones that develop in between the teeth, and just a plug for floss was really off, 
off the uh, subject here, but plug for flossing. What happens with uh, the bacteria that are in between the teeth, that cause cavities in between the teeth, are actually different from the bacteria that cause cavities elsewhere. They're colonizers, and they start laying down these layers. They build a biofilm uh, interproximally between the teeth, and they start setting up this little factory. And, you know, the different bacteria have different roles to play and so forth. But they set up their little factory, and they get in there, and then they start eating food particles and carbs and all this sort of thing, sugar that you feed them on a daily basis. And they, their, their product of their factory is acid. So when the back, basically it's bacterial poop, is acid. And the acid eats the enamel, erodes the enamel, gives an entry point to other bacteria, which then go through the enamel, get to the inner layer of the dentin, and the dentin is much softer, and then the decay spreads um, throughout the dentin much more rapidly. But the good thing about flossing is, and why once a day is enough, is because it takes about 24 hours for those bacteria to get their little factory set up and cranked up. So it's kind of like walking by an anthill every day and kicking it over. They really can't get themselves organized to do much harm if you go in every day with your floss and disorganize and disrupt their factory setup. Um, so, okay, sidebar. Back to the underserved and disadvantaged people that are mostly um, at risk for poor oral health. Um, living conditions can also affect oral health. If, if the patient is um, homeless or has an unstable home environment where they really don't have a place that they could even keep a toothbrush and toothpaste or have clean water um, to clean their mouth with, um, that's going to be a problem for the patients. Uh, lifestyle choices, I'm talking about dietary issues, smoking, uh, alcohol abuse, and so forth, can also affect um, oral health. Environmental factors, the, um, the availability and accessibility of um, oral health care systems, the, the money to actually go to the dentist. We have problems with people not only being uninsured, but being underinsured. Let's face it, most dental insurance programs are just crappy unless you already have really good oral health and you only need to go in for a checkup once in a while and maybe get a filling or something like that, your dental coverage is not enough. When dental insurance started back in the early 70s, the annual cap was about $1,000. And back then, a cap or a crown um, cost maybe 150 bucks or so, right? Today, that same cap or crown is going to run you on average about seven, eight, nine hundred dollars, depending on where you are. And the annual cap on most um, dental insurance programs, unless you pay more money and get that premium product, is still about a thousand dollars. So if you go to the dentist with a toothache and it's a lower molar, and you need to have a root canal and a buildup and a crown done to save that tooth. That's going to run you probably close to around $2,000 or more, between $2,000 and $2,500 to save that one tooth. And if your annual limit on your insurance is 1000 bucks, and you can have your tooth pulled for about $85 and insurance will cover it, what are you going to do? You're either going to pay a lot of money out of pocket or you're going to have that tooth pulled and just live with the consequences of not having um, a tooth there. And... I had a tooth pulled a couple of three years ago, first one I ever had pulled, not a pleasant experience. And there was nothing else I could do. I went through, I got, a, I got a filling done, that didn't work. I got a root canal done, that didn't work. I got a crown done, that didn't work. It turned out that my, the palatal root of my upper first molar was shattered all the way to the apex. I, I blame that on my students, you know, punching and grinding my teeth. I just shattered one of them. 
But anyway, I, I went through a, a lot. I was fortunate that I have friends that, you know, can provide me with these services and, and are generous enough not to, to charge me for them. But um, I had that tooth pulled, and I was amazed, first of all, of, of how much it, it wasn't pleasant. And I was thinking the whole time he was pulling my tooth, the chairman of the Department of Periodontology actually pulled my tooth. And I was thinking, my God, I hope my patients don't feel like this when I'm pulling their tooth. But, um, and I, I really hope that they don't. Um, but when the tooth went missing, I was amazed. And that's the only tooth I've got missing. I was amazed at how much it affected my ability to really eat and chew uh, what I wanted to. Um, so it does make a difference. To, you know, people say, oh, it's just one tooth. I've got, you know, 27 more in there. What's the big deal? Um, it is a big deal. It makes a huge difference. So imagine if you start losing one here and one there, so forth and so on it's going to be very difficult to maintain good oral health and a good diet and so forth. Um, and overall in the U.S., there's also been a lack of preventive oral health care systems, public health systems that have been put in place to actually address the needs. There have been a lot of emphasis placed on, you know, all the way back to the Surgeon General's report in 2000 about the poor state of oral health in America. Well, that was, you know, 11, 12 years ago, and we really haven't made a whole lot of progress in um, putting this out there as um, a real public health problem, other than just saying it's a problem, but actually doing something about it. So a word about oral health screenings. And um, the asterisk there, um, the workshop this afternoon is actually performing a thorough intraoral exam. I actually teach a course in the Surgical Physician Assistance Program um, at UAB where I teach intraoral exams, and they all have um, the opportunity to come to our clinic and um, practice their exams. It's a part of their training to come actually practice the exams on the patients. And that does a couple of things. Of course, it, it helps the students um, learn how to do good intraoral exams. But it also, a lot of times, it's their first introduction to an HIV-positive patient. First time they've ever met an HIV-positive patient, let alone actually put on gloves and, and got in someone's mouth and started poking around. And so it really helps to kind of break down a lot of barriers um, there with the, the students as well. But I thoroughly enjoy that course, and that's um, going to be the main focus of what we're talking about in the workshop this afternoon. So all patients should receive a soft tissue exam, your, your cursory looking for candidiasis and ulcers and so forth like that. You should also pay some attention to the teeth and gums themselves. We'll talk more about that a little bit later uh, in the program this morning. And then we're also going to talk a little bit later about deciding when is it an emergency and really needs to, to go, you know, on referral to the dentist like right now. And when they're doing okay and they can get a preventive care referral so that they go get into the system, start getting cleanings and checkups and so forth. All those things are important. So the, the two major health concerns um, that I feel <clears throat> are plaguing our patients today, other than the soft tissue manifestations and so forth, are uh, periodontal disease and just all-out dental decay, periodontal disease and dental caries, we'll call it. Mentioned earlier, causes a lot of pain and discomfort, a lot of suffering. Um, gum disease itself uh, can be very, very painful, um, not even to mention how the teeth feel when you've got cavities there. We also worry about there being um, a, a bacterial and a microbial burden in the patient's mouth. There's, there are like 700 and something bacteria in the mouth. 300 and something of them found in the periodontal pocket, you know, that little moat around your tooth before the gum actually becomes attached to the tooth. So we've even got fungal reservoirs in these cavities and in the periodontal disease. 
um, there's a lot of inflammation, and we've heard a lot about inflammation, you know, throughout the, the program as well. But there's, you know, chronic inflammation going on in this periodontal disease issue fueled by the dental caries, which is holding in more bacteria and fungal um, microbes as well. And then we also worry about actual infection, getting an abscess, either periodontal infection with, you know, purulence and all that, or a dental abscess, which can actually be fatal. Um, death from a dental abscess was very common, you know, not even a hundred years ago when we had no antibiotics and we didn't know how to treat them. And people would get, you know, a tooth abscess and it would spread to their brain or, you know, down their throat or something like that and actually die from it. And then, of course, we've already mentioned how important it is to try and maintain your teeth. So if we talk about gum disease, you basically break it down into two main categories. The most common one, of course, is gingivitis. And pretty much everybody is going to have a little bit of gingivitis at some point um, throughout their life. This is caused by a bacterial plaque biofilm. It affects only the gingiva. And, the, you know, the gingiva can get red and swollen and be tender and that sort of thing. And you say, well, you know, every time I floss, it hurts really bad, so I don't floss all that often. Well, part of the problem is that you're not flossing very often. If you haven't been flossing, you go in and floss uh, one day, you're going you're gonna to injure your gums. They're not going to like it very much. They're going to get tender, and they're going to swell up a little bit, and they might even bleed. So then you say, well, I'm going to put this floss away, and I'm not going to go back until my gums feel better. Well, if you don't do it every day and toughen up those gums and get them healthier, it's just going to be the same thing over and over and over. And there may be some spontaneous bleeding with some gingivitis, but usually not. The worst thing is actually periodontitis, periodontal disease. This also is caused by bacterial plaque that goes down into um, that pocket, that space between the tooth and the gum. You end up with getting attachment loss. So the gums are actually attached to the teeth by ligaments uh, into the cementum, and that's what sort of holds the teeth in place. And so we end up getting this pocketing, and we actually measure periodontal disease severity by using um, a periodontal probe, which measures in millimeters um, how much attachment loss has been incurred. And then you get irreversible tissue loss and bone loss, leading to tooth mobility and ultimately tooth loss. So if we look at a couple of cases here, this is gingivitis. This is gingivitis. So you can see red, swollen, puffy in there. And you can also see that this patient doesn't have very good oral hygiene. They haven't been cleaning very well. And so they have a lot of this puffy red stuff here. There's a lot of bacteria going on there. And, but that kind of gingivitis um, is mainly somewhat curable. Some patient education, a good cleaning, um, maybe fixing those cavities in there, which those can be fixed fixing those cavities in there to reduce the bacterial reservoirs. And this patient is going to be just fine. But then a very peculiar type of gingivitis, specifically um, seen in HIV-positive patients, is this linear gingival erythema. And we don't really know exactly what causes this. And you can see this patient has relatively good oral hygiene. You don't see a lot of plaque and food particles and stuff. The papillae are still pointed. It's not really puffy and red and swollen. Um, like the other one, you see this down here in the papillae. I had a lot of coffee this morning, sorry about that. And uh, so you can see that it's distinctly different. And uh, we actually treat it the same way because we don't really know what else to do for it. Um, it may or may not resolve. But this, in my opinion, doesn't really bother me as much to see because in most cases the patient is otherwise generally fairly 
healthy. They just have this going on in their, in their gingiva. But the other one, if we don't treat it and maintain it, then it can lead to more serious periodontal disease. There is a thing called necrotizing gingivitis, where somehow the bacteria get sort of turned on in the immune system inflammatory response. This is a fairly localized situation. This is the same patient, upper and lower um, left side. And you can see how it's beginning to necrose there in the interdental papillae, and the tissue is kind of peeling away. Um, this can also be treated with uh, de local debridement, um, some use of uh, antimicrobial rinses, and uh, that sort of thing, and improving the patient's oral hygiene, and this will actually get better. It's exceedingly painful, though, so in the meantime, you have, may have to provide them with some nutritional supplements and pain medication, too. This is a little bit more advanced, uh, generalized case of the same necrotizing gingivitis, and you can see how the tissue is just actually dying away from here. Then this patient, you know, came in and said, I don't know, this is my gums have really, really been hurting for the past several days. And this is this is acute. This has a very rapid onset. You know, a couple of days ago, he was fine. And then he comes in today and this is all of a sudden started up. Um, this can sometimes be associated in this kind of a situation um, with a decreased immune system. We still treat it in approximately the same way. We go through, we try to clean out all the dead tissue in there, make sure that the teeth are really clean of any, any um, bacteria or plaque or calculus in there, those hard deposits on the teeth, um, get them on some good antimicrobial rinse and uh, some pain medication and nutritional supplements as well. This is generalized chronic periodontitis. So this patient has not obviously been going to get their teeth cleaned very regularly, and they don't actually brush and floss every day either. Um, but this, these are not cavities. This is actually um, the buildup that settles from the saliva. You see this lower anterior, so you've got um, Wharton's ducts right in behind there spilling out. So the mineral content accumulates on the teeth there, and uh, you can see gingival resection where this is traveling down um, the root surface. So even though we could go in and debride all of this, these teeth are already, you can see how they've moved out of place. That one has actually almost dropped completely out right there. Um, but this patient is going to probably end up losing almost all of their teeth. Um, the day, this day that I took this picture, I took out from this tooth all the way back. There were four or five in a row there that were just basically floating in the soft tissue. And there's no way to reverse that. Um, I'm going to try to save one or two here and one or two here with very aggressive uh, periodontal therapy uh, so that maybe the patient can maintain a couple of teeth uh, in the lower jaw to be able to wear a partial denture as opposed to a complete denture. Complete dentures on the upper are not that difficult to make and they're not that difficult to um, wear and maintain because the way the denture stays in, I won't get into all that, but anyway, it's a lot easier. In the lower jaw, it's practically impossible without either teeth or dental implants to get a lower complete denture, so the patient has no teeth whatsoever, a lower complete denture to sit in there and function right. Because you have, this is the part of the jaw, of course, that moves during function. You have the tongue and all these muscles and stuff in there. And instead of having a big broad palate to use for tissue coverage to help with the suction retention of the denture, you've got this little sort of a, a, a boomerang down there. And also, through function, this bone withers away uh, over time. So you don't even have a ridge for the denture to sort of latch onto. So I try very, very hard 
to make sure that the patient doesn't lose all of their teeth. This alveolar bone here is there specifically to support the teeth. So if the teeth are gone, the body recognizes that and takes the bone away and replaces it with something else. So over time, this withers away and they don't have any way to hold in their denture. Even if they only retain one tooth, then there will be a mound of bone there surrounding that tooth, which will be helpful in maintaining um, some type of prosthesis. Here's a localized severe periodontitis. You can see all this buildup. These are hard deposits. This is not something that can just be brushed away. You can see it's actually caused the tissue to go away all the way down into the unattached tissue, all the way down with a lot of bone loss as well. These, the, the bacterial plaques that grow in here kind of grow like barnacles on a boat. They actually travel down the root surface, and as they're growing down the root surface, they're detaching the soft tissue. They're causing the bone, the immune response from the body. The bone goes away, and it will not ever be replaced. I ended up having to extract these two teeth here and put in a little temporary um, removable partial denture right there. We were able to maintain that one. Um, but this patient's going to um, have some problems because he doesn't even have any bone there to be able to support a dental implant if we wanted to put it there. This is a pretty severe case of necrotizing, acute necrotizing ulcerative periodontitis, again associated with um, a very low immune system. But you can see how the tissue there is just completely um, eroding away. These teeth are just flapping in the breeze. There was nothing literally holding those teeth in. The patient would try to talk or even if I let go of the lip, it would cause the teeth to you know, move back. Their tongue would push out. The teeth would go out. So we ended up having to not only remove all this dead tissue in here, but we had to remove all these teeth as well. And again, there's no bone under there to support uh, any type of prosthesis. Periodontal abscess, usually very localized, usually a, a, a local foreign object. Popcorn husk is the most common cause for getting slipping right under the gum line and causing a periodontal abscess. All right, xerostomia or dry mouth problems. We have salivary gland disorders, of course, in uh, HIV. Medications, 400 and something different medications contribute to dry mouth. That's a lot of medications. All right, and not HIV meds in general, really not a big problem, but anti-anxiety, uh, hypertension, uh, antidepressives, so on, so forth and so on. So a lot of the concomitant medications that our patients are taking contribute to dry mouth issues. Um, dietary habits, drying the mucosa, smoking, huge, huge, huge problem, um, alcohol abuse, and a little bit of sidebar about meth mouth. Meth, of course, contributes in a lot of different ways. The corrosive effects of the meth itself actually um, deteriorates the enamel and uh, starts the decaying process. But then you've got going on meth binges, you know, poor diet, not paying attention to what you're eating, not paying any attention to actually cleaning your mouth or anything like that. Um, so it can deteriorate um, rapidly. I have a picture of it here in a couple of minutes. So this is cervical decay caused by dry mouth issues. So this patient actually has pretty good oral hygiene, and these cavities have become sort of an arrested or chronic state. Um, but he has dry mouth issues, and that's what caused these cervical lesions down by the gum line because plaque sits there, doesn't get washed away by the saliva. These are totally restorable with a resin-modified glass on them or cement. This is our guy from earlier. 
with his cavities. And unless we change this guy's habits, his cavities are just going to keep developing over and over because he's actually in denial. He swears to me that he brushes and flosses three times a day. And that's what his upper teeth look like. So I have a tendency not to actually believe that he brushes and flosses three times a day. This is not a fixable situation. I've already removed all of these teeth, and we're going to have to make him a denture. Meth mouth. This patient actually came in about three days um, before I came down here. Um, 22-year-old male, had meth problems, and you can see how it erodes the upper anterior teeth, and that's from this particular patient's preferred method of, uh, of taking the meth uh, in the bong or whatever you call it and inhaling directly right into the mouth so the corrosion goes right up in there. And he's not all that great at brushing and flossing either, so he has other issues uh, in the posterior. This is a periapical abscess. This comes from the tooth. You can see that little place right there. I just wanted to throw that in as a contrast to the periodontal abscess. Um, you can barely see it, but right there is a little fistula with some pus coming out, probably related to that big old filling. All right, so when is it an emergency, and when is it urgent, and when is it routine? So the, the main thing is to just ask, ask the right questions, okay? So a routine appointment is so that the patient has um, an opportunity to just get the next available appointment. And depending on what your schedule is, you know, that might be a few weeks down the road, a few months down the road. But there's no urgency. Just go over, make an appointment, whatever they have is fine. If someone says, you know, this has been bothering me for, you know, several weeks or so forth, that's not an emergency. If it was an emergency, it, they would have complained about it when it started. The discomfort might be mild. It's not really disruptive in their daily routine. They can go to work. They can sleep. They can eat and so forth. They get some relief from over-the-counter medications, specifically anti-inflammatories. Usually if several teeth are involved, unless there's been some sort of trauma, it's not really an emergency. The pain is non-spontaneous and non-lingering. That's a key. If the pain is elicited by something, I drink ice water, it hurts really bad, I swallow it, goes away. Not an emergency. And if they have a little bit of mild tenderness to chewing or biting, probably has something to do with a little bit of gingivitis. Those are not emergencies. So if it's an urgent situation, which means they should be seen, regardless of what your schedule is, the sooner the better, of course, but they should be seen within maybe the next two or three weeks or so. Been hurting for several days. The pain is moderate but not really disruptive. I can still go to work. I can still function. You get some relief from uh, NSAIDs especially. It's kind of a dull pain, intermittent. Sometimes it hurts, sometimes it doesn't. Not a big deal, just kind of bothersome. If the pain is sharp but still non-spontaneous and lingering, that's getting to be a little bit more serious. That's getting into the realm of maybe affecting the pulp, the nerve of the tooth. If you have some tenderness on percussion, it could be a cracked tooth. It could be development of an abscess. If they have periodontal disease, non-necrotizing type, urgent situation but not really an emergency. And any time that there, you have suspicion that a lesion in the mouth uh, might be some type of cancer, then that's going to be more urgent and you're going to want to biopsy that within a few weeks. So an emergency situation is they've got to have an appointment now, today, tomorrow, the first thing that you can get. If they call you up and say, my tooth started killing me last night. I was up all night. I can't live with it anymore. That's an emergency. That's a true toothache. That's a true dental emergency. The pain is severe. They can't go to work. They can't go to school. Usually only one tooth is involved in a true dental emergency, again, unless it's trauma. The pain is dull and constant. It just won't quit. It's sharp and spontaneous. You're just standing there minding your own business, you know, watching World Cup or whatever, and boom, all of a sudden it just radiates throughout your head like a bolt of lightning. 
Extreme tenderness to percussion, there could be a dental abscess there, and then acute necrotizing periodontal diseases. And any time they have a swelling, then um, that might be some sort of infection that needs to be addressed. I have three cases. You want me to do those, or shall I go? Okay. So, artist response. You have, okay. 55-year-old man comes to your office, and his complaint is, my teeth have been chipping off, and I need to get them fixed. His eyes, pain, or swelling, and has minimal functional impairment. This would be a dental emergency, an urgent situation, um, routine dental matter, or really, seriously, how can that not hurt? So where's my... Oh, I'm not pushing the button. Go ahead and respond. Survey says, excellent. You're paying attention. It is a routine dental matter. He doesn't have functional impairment, and he says this has been going on for months. So it looks hideous, but he is not in any immediate pain with this. Routine dental matter. Next. 35-year-old man comes to the office. My tooth broke yesterday while eating eggs, and it kept me up all night. He desires previous pain and swelling, has moderate functional impairment. Is it an emergency, urgent, routine, or dental matter, or eggs? Seriously? Okay, I do not mean to, American Egg Board, do not mean to malign eggs. Facts of the case, that's what he said. I love eggs. Survey said, this one actually is a dental emergency. Great. Kept him up all night. Regardless of how it looks, it's probably a chronic matter, but it broke last night. He's been up all night. Okay, last one. Go. Okay, so a 58-year-old man comes in for emergency sick call. He says, I lost my upper partial. He has no pain, no discomfort. He isn't concerned about the aesthetics. Somewhat functional impaired, but not really. He's still eating what he wants. Is this a dental emergency? Is it urgent? Tragic, but routine because he lost his partial. What the heck is a partial? Go. Survey says, that's true. All right, what if I give you a little bit more information? This is my last one. So upon further questioning, the patient says, well, I had my partial in last night when I went to bed, but I've looked everywhere and I can't find it. Does that change your opinion? Vote. Well, the majority of people are correct. This, this might be a problem. Okay, so I'm no expert at reading chest x-rays. However, I do have some experience in making removable partial dentures, and I can assure you that that is a partial denture sitting right above the pyloric sphincter. And that right here is an um, open-faced gold crown, which positively, positively identifies it as this patient's partial. Um, so, um, actually, GI was called in, and they were able to retrieve the partial, cleaned it off, patient walked out, happy as a clown. Thank you. Thanks. We had about um, five minutes for questions. I will be writing my evaluation that we put these talks later in the morning as we put the STD talk. But, um, 
if anyone has any questions, please come to the mic or fill out the card. So my question is, frequently patients will come to us in the HIV clinic with these emergencies until they can get in with dental. And they are usually asking for an antibiotic and pain medication. So can you comment on when it's appropriate to give folks antibiotics and also just briefly go over routine dental prophylaxis antibiotic therapy? Okay. So the guidelines are, if the patient comes in with an obvious swelling or if they have tenderness on percussion, so if you tap the tooth or they bite down on something and that causes pain, then there could be a dental abscess. And I realize that in most cases you're not going to have access to dental x-rays to confirm that. So first antibiotic of choice is penicillin if there's no allergy. 500, four times a day for a week. That is if the pain and the swelling has developed within three days. So if you're about three days or less, then penicillin is first. If they're allergic, if it's over three days, or if they have been previously treated with acillin unresponsively, then we go to clindamycin. And that would be 300 every six hours for a week as well. And prophylaxis with antibiotics, we don't typically pre-prophylax our patients with antibiotics for routine dental matters. If the patient has an obvious infection, whether it be periodontal disease or odontogenic abscess, then we treat them with the appropriate antibiotic, but we don't treat them with antibiotics just because they're going to have dental services done. Did that answer your question? We have fairly good resources for the dental teeth type stuff that is occurring in the mouth. What we don't have is where these lumps and bumps and things that, have you always had that huge mass on the top of your heart palate? And I don't know if I've already had that there. And getting like a biopsy or getting some sort of path or, you know, I'll send them to the dentist and say, well, I don't know what it is. And I'm not really sure what resources I need to be looking at. Am I supposed to be sending to an academic center, dental school? What do I do about stuff like that? You're right. Most general dentists do not have any real training in oral pathology itself, very minimal anyway. So they know enough to do a screening and look and go, hmm, that doesn't seem right. And then they refer it on to someone else. So the people that you're going to be looking for are either oral surgeons, oral medicine doctors, or ENTs should be able to do that. So if you are doing a screening on your patient and you see some sort of lump or bump or plaque or whatever that you feel isn't appropriate for being there and you have no explanation for it being there, then instead of sending them to the regular dentist, you should try to make contact with either an academic center would work or with an oral pathologist or an oral surgeon or an ENT will actually do it as well. The back. Yeah, quick questions. Once the patient has upper and lower dentures, how often do they need to go and see you? Once the patient has a successfully operating set of 
upper and lower dentures. There are sometimes numerous follow-up appointments after the delivery to make minor adjustments and stuff to get them fitted just properly. Um, once a year is enough. We'd like for them to come in so that we can do a soft tissue exam, examine their dentures as well, make sure they're still fitting properly, working properly, not causing any problems, but also to look at their soft tissue and make sure they're not developing uh, any problems with that. So once a year after they have complete dentures is about right. Okay, um, just a couple of quick questions and answers from the cards. Um, does it matter to you at all what a patient's CD4 or viral load is before you do a procedure? Um, actually, no. Not, it's not going to affect whether or not I do the procedure. Um, what I would keep in the back of my mind is, of course, um, you know, should there be some injury of some sort to either myself or my assistant and so forth, then um, viral load might be important in that as far as um, uh, chances, risk for transmission or something. Um, but it really doesn't uh, matter to me. As long as their doctor says, um, yeah, they're healthy enough to be treated, then that, that doesn't really matter to me that much. Okay. And um, what kind of provisions are in the Affordable Care Act for oral health? I'm sorry, say that again. In the Affordable Care Act, the mm -hmm. new health care reform law, what is available there for oral health? I really have no idea. Not much. Okay. Um, now, see, I didn't want to say that. Okay. Edit that out. Okay. Um, so uh, some patients with advanced HIV who have neutropenia, low CD4 count, high viral load, and have mouth ulcers that develop that look kind of shaggier than aptus ulcers. Mm -hmm. um, it looks more like necrotizing of periodontitis, but it's an ulcer elsewhere in the mouth. Right. What do you, what's the management for that? Um, well, first of all, of course, try to make sure that they're getting um, proper care for their uh, HIV because the best thing to do is get their immune system back on track and they'll, um, they will probably resolve those. But you can e either use um, uh, local um, topical um, steroids like a um, dental paste. Um, there's one called uh, triamcinolone dental paste that is a, a, a steroid with uh, aura base that you can rub, not really rub on, but apply um, to the ulcers. Um, you can use the magic mouthwash type formulas um, just to make them feel a little bit better um, and that sort of thing. Sometimes if they're really bad, um, systemic steroids um, might be helpful as well. Okay, back here. Thanks very much for that. I'm going to go floss at the break, I swear. Thanks for the boost on that. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, if I were lucky enough to, I, I, we work with a lot of folks at w one of my programs, we're working with a lot of folks who are um, indigent or maybe newly tested HIV positive or are very young and probably taking care of their teeth is probably, if, if we always say there's something that's the lowest concern, maybe it is the very lowest thing we think of. If I were lucky enough to get like a pharmaceutical magical grant to have a small kit, something I could hand out mm -hmm. to folks to sort of <coughs> emphasize some of the things you've talked about, uh, you know, dry mouth, the, the basic dental care and things. Could you be as specific as possible if there was some small kit that I could hand out to folks and something that sort of says, you know, your smile is attached to the rest of your health, you know, brochures. I mean, could you, if you could be as specific as possible, what would you like to see me hand out in something like that? Thanks. Um, well, I think there should be some, some literature type information in there. Um, mainly appealing to their vanity because that's what most folks are going to respond to. They'll lose every tooth in the back of their head regardless of how it affects their function, but they want to keep two, two teeth in the front so they can smile. So, you know, some information about how important it is, you know, to, to maintain your oral health, to keep that, um, uh, that possibility for social interaction and so forth. But also just a toothbrush of any type 
I don't really care what type of toothbrush it is. It's more important about how you use it and how often you use it than it is about the toothbrush itself, except for hard bristle toothbrushes. Don't want those. Um, some type of toothpaste with fluoride in it um, as well, and some floss. So I think a little bit of literature about um, the effects of not taking care of your oral health, both appealing to vanity and to health in general, and then some tools in there, floss, toothpaste, and there really needs to be some education on how to properly brush, how to properly floss. Because unless somebody really shows you, you could have been flossing your whole life every day and not doing it right, and you'd still end up with those interproximal cavities. So there needs to be some educational, maybe some little pictures or something on a, you know, a handout that really shows you how to actually um, use the floss. Okay, we have 40 seconds for question and answer together. My name is Dr. Marshall D'Souza from Fort Myers, Florida. Dr. Hill, thank you very much for that excellent talk. I am originally from India, and I have been here for almost 20 years now. Dr. Hill, I empathize with you. You said you had no dental floss until you went to medical school. I never saw a dentist in India until I was 35 years old. So, okay. My, uh, you know, question is, only time people go to dentists in India to have their tooth pulled after they have tried the door thing and all that. I have two questions. One, HIV gingivitis, you showed a picture. Can it be a marker of immunosuppression or a red flag for HIV disease? You know, can I put that picture, show it to my non-HIV treating physician when you see this you know, erythema, hey, it should raise a red flag for you. Can I do that? Mm -hmm. Can it be a marker like the oral hairy leukoplakia for HIV infection? Yeah, that particular, the linear gingival erythema, previously known as HIV gingivitis, uh -huh. is very uh, particular to HIV infection itself. It's also been seen a little bit in other immunocompromised patients, immunosuppressed patients like transplant patients and so forth, but by far and away, um, HIV is where you're going to find that, that really distinct red band. And it doesn't hurt? The patient um, doesn't complain of it? Maybe a little mild discomfort, but not quite the same as uh, regular gingivitis. Okay, thank you very much.